Greetings and salutations, board game fans. This is episode 30 of the Dice Pirates podcast. We're going to go ahead and jump into a review of one of Stonemeyer's latest games, Red Rising. I am your host, Ian, as always, joined by Aaron and Matt, and special guest, my sister TJ, is actually here to break down the game with us as well, as she has it. She's played it a bunch, played some solo games, so going to get a lot of expertise there. How you guys doing? Excited to have you on, TJ. Yeah, thank you. I'm really excited to be on. I've been listening to the podcast from the very beginning, and uh, I, I never actually thought I'd be able to be on it, so that's pretty fun for me. Awesome. Thank you for being here. It's exciting to have uh, someone with wit and intelligence here, um, as opposed to some of the other folks that uh, are on this podcast. On oh, yeah, I can basis. agree. There's some people I grew up with, you know, people, maybe siblings of mine. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this was already a mistake. Yeah. We're going to go ahead and move on before you guys can talk anymore. And I'm going to let Aaron, somebody who actually likes me, Aaron's actually going to go ahead and bring us a soapbox. Aaron, I think you want to complain about something. So there's been this trend, uh, especially over the past few years in board games, of like deluxe versions of a game where you have the regular mass market peasant edition where everything's just, you know, regular cardboard and paper and then you have the nice fancy bourgeoisie version uh where you've got you know metal coins and and custom intricate wooden meeples i just recently received my kickstarter copy of it's a wonderful kingdom the legendary edition and they made some really weird choices with what and how they chose to upgrade and deluxify uh the insert while it looks really cool, uh, is just folded cardboard. And, like, on the one hand, that's cool because, like, it, you know, sustainable practices and all that. But, like, when I got it, it was already rips and tears in the insert. And that's fine. It's the insert. But, like, that's not a great first impression when you, when you just got it. You just opened the box. Also, it can't hold all of the cards in the card slot once they've been sleeved, which feels especially insulting because part of what I got with my deluxe edition pledge was a pack of sleeves for the game. What? <laughs> so they wait, they sent it with sleeves and then it but does it work with the sleeves. That's awesome. Correct. I mean they're like it's a wonderful kingdom. Like they're 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 branded sleeves for this copy of this oh, game. Oh. Okay, that's um, all right. Yeah. Uh also the like if you've ever played it's a wonderful world uh, one of the, the key components of the game, so you've got the little hexagonal board. It's like a long hexagon. sits mm -hmm. between the players. And in the Legend Edition, they also include a full-size board that sits on the table that exactly duplicates that board, but bigger. So you have less space around the table to like put your tableau that you're building. <laughs> And the uh, the but it still comes with the original little hex board, and if you put it on the big board, I mean it's it's the exact artwork. They just cut it out of that, and so that's the board. But the thing that baffles me the most is one of the the I mean it feels weird to say, but like key components of the game, like physical components, is the round tracker. There's four rounds of the game, where one person begins each round. And of all the all of the components in this game that got upgrades and, and premium versions, the round tracker is just a little green rectangle punched out of some of the thinnest punch board I've ever received. Oh and my I gosh! Don't understand? I mean, because it can't. It comes with like eight metal coins to represent. To, to replace cardboard tokens from the base version of the game. So they already had figured out the logistics of getting metal coins in the game. So, like, what's one more? And it's just, it's it's baffling to me that, like, it's the weirdest deluxe version of a game I've ever gotten. Not the it worst. It doesn't sound like a deluxe version at all. That sounds like the frustrating version of the game with all of those things you paid extra for and then it doesn't fit and the insert is yeah, ripped it's... and there's a random punch board. And I've, I've only played it a couple times, still working on, on the review, but like, it's a really good game. And it's so frustrating to, to know that I'm going to sit this down in front of somebody and pull out like these nice wooden meeples and these nice metal coins and then... 
where did that little bit of cardboard fall behind and under the insert that I'm just going to, it's already scraped and torn. I'm just going to onto the table with all the rest of this gorgeousness. I don't know. Does it still have like the little plastic uh, cubes, little chiclet like cubes? Yeah. Or does this game not do cubes? No, it, it definitely still does cubes. As a matter of fact, in the deluxe version, I'm glad you reminded me to go off on this. Uh, so, uh, in the original game, you had like generals that you would get that were uh, bonuses. In this game, you get soldiers as bonuses because it's medieval themed. And you have a box that sits in the insert. So, you pull the box out and then you pull a tray out of the box. And that's what sits on the board to keep them all in one place. But the tray is shorter than the box, and the tray is completely full with the little soldier tokens. So the only way to get it out of the box is to dump it out and then, <laughs> like, maneuver the tray because the tray just about exactly fits inside the box. And then each of the five different colors of tokens have their own little box with their own little tray. So you have to open, you have to carefully peel back the flap, and then reach in and slide out the tray, and then set it on the board, and then set that one box off to the side, and then you do that five more times for all of the different resources, and it's like there's that level of overkill, <laughs> and then the round marker is just a little piece of cardboard. You know, you understand? Like, do you get why that? Why I'm so fixated on that specifically? I feel like parts of this uh, game were designed uh, in a country that used the metric system, and parts of it were designed in America, and no one thought that they should do a conversion <laughs> to see if any of this actually lined up. Because it's like everything is just slightly too big or slightly too long to fit in the thing. And, uh, yeah, I like the idea of, in their mind, like the deluxe convenience of like a little tray that slides out of the box, and then none of that works. It's like they were so focused on being fancy that they made it all so much less convenient story of my life i I'm, I'm just blown away the fact that like i mean it sounds like a lot of it's really nice but did nobody think to test this beforehand like surely these would have become at like the the thing that i think i'm most fixated on here like i, I can kind of forget the rest of it you created an insert for the box i'm okay with not having enough space for sleeved cards because you know what most people aren't going to sleeve their cards Fair enough. It's nice to make space for that, but honestly, I don't mind that. But it's not a When you include Absolutely. sleeves in the box and don't leave space for the sleeved cards, what are you doing? So there was a breakdown in communication somewhere, and it's that's, that's, that's a lot. That's crazy. One of the top posts on BoardGameGeek about this game currently is somebody has designed a, a 3D printed insert and you have to like cut away some of the cardboard to make room for the 3D printed insert. And then the 3D printed insert will allow you to, to hold the cards in the box while sleeved. Uh, how mm. much extra did you have to pay for this deluxe edition? Uh, Can I ask that? You know what? Let's not, my wife's mm. home, let's not get into finance. <laughs> let's not get into finances. Let's no. just not worry about it's it. It's not a conversation we ever need to have on this podcast. It was somewhere between $1 and a million dollars. This is a conversation we're definitely going to have, but not yet. Uh, because we do want to at some point talk about just, just how expensive these games get, you know? But that's, of course, you know, not something we're going to get into now. TJ does have a soapbox for us, so why don't you jump right into that? I do. I have a soapbox of my own. So... I'm somewhat of a more casual gamer. I have some friends here. I'm a college student and I have some friends here at school that also like to play games. Um, but as we all know, actually planning a game night is really difficult uh, at all stages of life. For me, we have all these evening activities and trying to get everybody's schedules to match is so hard. But I realized the last time that I had a game night, I had people over and I discovered that I had invited too many people. I invited seven of my friends and all of them came and the games that I had planned to play had a maximum of seven players. So I've we ended up playing- Like that, that's the most outrage. I've never had that happen. I've never <laughs> No one- This just like, in, Aaron you, does not have friends. You always account you always account for like 10% of people not showing up. Whatever the number is, uh-huh. it's it's airplane rules. You oversell tickets. Oh, yeah. That's a lot exactly of people are going to miss their flight. 
That is exactly what I was thinking. I like I honestly, that's really inconsiderate of your friends to all show up. They should have texted so each other and be like, "Who's bailing?" Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> What's the percentage? Who's going to bail? Yeah, like which one's not coming? But yeah, so all of them came, and uh, then I couldn't play the games that I'd planned to play. And we did end up having fun. We ended up playing some party games instead. Uh, but there ended up being nine of us, including my my roommate as well. So it got me thinking that the difficulty of planning a game night doesn't end when you actually, you know, get everybody to pick a night and uh, commit to coming, mm-hmm. because you also have to think about what are you going to play? How many people should you invite? Can you split your game into two and have two games going at the same time? Or how do you plan how many games you're going to play? Or, or all of these different considerations, because I, I don't get an opportunity to do this very often, and uh, I don't have a lot of experience planning it. So I thought maybe I could... Uh, ask you guys for some advice since you have a lot more experience in that realm. Ooh, I love this question. I'm so eager to jump in. Cause I, so we, ha- we had a running game night, uh, that ran, uh, weekly for three, almost four years before. Four years. Uh, yeah. Before, uh, Ian, That's how long it took for me to get sick of you. Yeah. You, 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 you miss me every day, every day. Uh, you long for me. Uh, you uh, no, we had a good, we had a really successful weekly game night that ran for a number of years, and it had uh, a group of uh, consistent players that are basically the dice pirates. I think you've met on this podcast, listening public, everyone that's in the core game group. We also had a few drop ins and others who would come and go, and it was uh, it was kind of like hard uh, to get off the ground. I think getting a game night going with a group of friends is kind of a awkward uh thing uh i have a couple of suggestions um because i've uh, off the top of my mind because i have thought about for a while that we should do a show on this so i actually had a couple of thoughts in mind i think uh i think one thing is like building a library of games is a part of being able to like host a gay game night and which is an interesting challenge especially if you're on a budget but you do need like a mix of games it would like themes and like uh player counts so that you can like pivot, you know, because if you do every, I think every game, you know, you don't have to have like a million games to have a solid game collection. But if you have like f- like five or six good games in like a mix of genres that are like a few like good like four player like small game night games, and then like a couple of like large player count behemoths for like when you want to have a big game night, and then a couple in betweens, like that's a good mix. So because you want to be able to pivot, like if more people are coming or if people are like, oh, I want to bring some friends. Right, or if you end up with uh, different groups of people or some that aren't yeah. very huge gamers and others that want to play really crunchy games. Um, I think it's totally valid to have two games going on a game night. We we only I'm not Absolutely. sure that we ever did that, or we maybe did it a couple times, but I've been in settings uh, with like lots of people playing games. Uh, I think we've done this at Aaron at one of your family gatherings before where people broke off. And that's totally fine. You know, I think just being in a room with lots of people playing games is still very, like, fun and still has a good atmosphere. And so I think it's totally valid to, like, you know, all right, look, nine people showed up tonight. We'll do, like, who wants to play this game? Who wants to play this game? And then there'll be a ton of crosstalk, and it'll be confusing, and it'll be lovely. The big thing that I would interject here is that if you are going to split up into multiple games, they need to be games that at least one of them, the one that you are either you do not participate in either game, or you, the game you are not participating in is a game that everybody playing knows. Sure. Because otherwise, you're going to be jumping back and forth. And if you're trying to explain to two tables of people how to play a game, that's not going to go super great. So you need to make sure that people are going to know how to play the games and they can actually get into it. Otherwise, it's just going to become a, a very difficult situation. Yeah. I've definitely, like, the other thing you can do, is, and I've done this a few different times, is if you just need to drop the player count by one and you're the host you know, maybe you don't play and you can kind of like moderate the game and teach it to everybody and just kind of ping pong around and help people. Uh, That's actually kind of a good vibe sometimes, especially if you have a lot of new players because you kind of have a neutral player who can kind of move around and kind of make sure the game's flowing smoothly. Or if it's a game that uh, has a narrative element, you could almost be like the DM. Like I've done that with Betrayal at House on the Hill before where I didn't actually play, but I just like uh ran everything and like read all the encounter cards that works pretty well um but yeah i think having a good mix of games is really key so that you can sort of pivot um 
I think another thing is like kind of planning a game night and planning a game night. You might want to like plan to like, you're either going to like play like one behemoth game or maybe plan for like, plan it out like a meal, you know, have like a little opener of something short and quick to kind of break the ice and get everybody in the groove. Uh, then you've got your main event, you got your, uh, your entree, like the game we really all came here to play. And then, uh, a little palate cleanser at the end, like sushi go, something that's sort of mindless and quick. And some people will leave, some people will hang around and that's a good mix. Like three games seems like a lot for like a game night, but honestly, if the lighter games are fast, that's a good way to kind of like break up the evening. Yeah. When you said a lighter game to finish off, sushi go is actually the first thing that came to my mind. So <laughs> Same same thoughts there. It is kind of funny, though, because you said Sushi Go is kind of mindless, but I know people who make Sushi Go very, very thinky indeed. I know I know exactly the person you're thinking of who does. Yeah, uh, Sushi Go, if you, want, <laughs> if you want to win Sushi Go, it can get, like, really intense. But I just want to, like, look at the card. I just want to look at the cute little pictures and pass the cards around. That's so, exactly how I to, feel. I'm just, like, I'm looking at the cards. I'm As soon as I've passed the cards on, I have no idea what's there. I'm looking at exactly yeah. what's in my hand right now, and then I'm passing it on. Strategy, in the I moment. don't know her. Yep, yep. What cards have I already drafted? Who cares? Strategy, she doesn't even go to school here. I don't, I don't have time for this nonsense. <laughs> yeah, well, these are all really helpful thoughts. I definitely feel like I will be able to be more prepared next time that I invite people over to play some games, and I'm going to be able to better utilize the things that I actually have sitting in my board game closet right now. So this has been really helpful. <laughs> couple One, one of the, the game groups that I, I play with um the the organizer she will host like she'll alternate types of game nights and the types of the the different individuals that she will invite to each night where she will have kind of a a bunch of people there's like three fold out card tables in different rooms of the house we're all going to play stuff like hanabi and sushi go and then the alternate game night is we're in her back room around the very nice board game table with the set-in thing, and we're there to play, like, two games over the course of six hours and be absolutely just, like, physically miserable at the end of it. But it's, you know, when you invite ten people to game night, it's hard to even get that core group to split off to be able to play the heavier weight, crunchier games. So it is sometimes worth setting up just a separate GCAL invite for those five people to be like, hey, I know that you like games that make the smoke come out of your ears. So... Hardcore game night and casual game night? Exactly. Right. So it kind of sounds like part of planning a good game night is making sure that everyone who's coming knows what to expect. So yes, if you're absolutely. just inviting absolutely. some friends who you've maybe never played with before, then you should like be talking about what kinds of games am I planning to play and what kind of level of commitment am I expecting from you as yeah. I invite you over to this game night? <laughs> We're here to play Twilight Imperium. I uh, hope you cleared your calendar for the next seven to eight hours. <laughs> Did you I will be expecting or... you to bring snacks. <laughs> yeah. And also hydrate yourself. <laughs> I mean, that is a huge part, like expectations. We talk about that a lot, you know, just like being ready for the game you're playing. But yeah, like having people know what, what they're expecting when they go into it is, is such a huge part. I mean, for instance, you would never invite Aaron over to a game night where you're going to play any sort of social deduction game because then no, he no, might just not. fly off the handle. He would try. <laughs> he would get I will, very upset. He would throw weep. cards. Hey, I had one final thought. I do. Have, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but it's something I just I want to get out there because I think it's one of the. It was in uh, uh, is in TJ's question, and we didn't really touch on it. Uh, scheduling, trying to get people together is always like the worst. I do have one tip for that. Uh, consider Sunday night. Uh, this is a. Uh, this is uh, maybe that doesn't work for everybody, but we had a lot of success with a Sunday night meetup because people don't tend to schedule stuff on Sunday nights. Now, obviously, that's a work night or school night for a lot of people, so you can't roll as late into the wee hours as you can on a Friday. But if you start earlier enough and keep it kind of keep it to a tight two and a half, maybe three hours, you can uh, you can get a lot of fun in. And Sunday night uh, really worked for us. So if you're having a lot of trouble, you try to carve out a night like that where it doesn't work, or Consider the game day. We're all, every, the, the, the focus is always on a game night. Nothing wrong with getting together at 2 in the afternoon on a Saturday and uh, gaming till dinner time. And everyone can still go do 
Saturday night fun uh, young people things. I think uh, one of the biggest things is just having a consistent time. Even if you don't have a big group, if you have one or two people who are willing to come over, because that's how we started the game group together with Matt, is that I heard he played games on Sunday night. And even though I think at the time it was just you and Max, uh, I think sometimes there was one other guy showing up. We mm -hmm. heard that you played it, and so we were like, hey, can we come? And even though we were actually filling out the group to make it a decent size. We thought it was like a, a regular thing. So even if you make it consistent where people know that you do it, it doesn't have to be a lot of people. It can just be one person coming over to play some two-player games. Having that consistency means that when other people want to do it, you can give them a date and be like, this is when we play. Come here. Yeah. Totally. Sunday and day. Both good ideas. The last time I had a game time was actually Sunday afternoon, which is pretty funny. People think As their Sundays aside, pretty open. Yeah. As an aside, the reason why I can't do Sunday nights is because I have um, uh, I have rehearsal every Sunday night, so it's a uh, it's a no go for me. Well, now it's just up to you to decide what's more important in your life, like games, <laughs> my scholarship money, or games. This is a topic we will definitely be coming back to because there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot that really goes into it, and we can dive further. But, of course, we do need to get moving on because we don't want to spend the entire episode on this. We are going to jump into a game of Bitterboard Gamers real quick, which is, of course, the game where we read out some one-star reviews. We try to guess what the game is. Of course, I say we because this time Aaron is actually going to be running the game. So I expect to get nothing correct, but I'm excited to be on the other side. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, so this is a little bit of a cheat. The first review is technically from Amazon, but it was it was so good I couldn't. Yeah. Okay, we'll allow it. So let me. Sorry, I thought I actually had this pulled up already, and apparently I didn't. I only had part of it on my phone. Wow, you had one job. Wow, I'm a single job. I know. You know, the first uh, entire episode, actually maybe the first two episodes of Bitter Board Gamers, were actually entirely Amazon reviews until I realized people are way more passionate about a game about games on Board Game Geek. So you you found the salt mines. I found the salt mines, and it has proven bountiful. Uh, <laughs> we should. Are we at the point now where we need a, a Bitter Board Gamers theme song? <gasps> that would be so fun. I would love that. That would make me happy as a listener. I, I think we need like a bitter board gamers like bitter board gamers like musical sting. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, just sting Ian, every time. Time for yeah. you to burst out a little theme song. Like boo 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 boo, get bitter. Well, that was McDonald's. I could do better. Let me shake it up. <laughs> Let me do a different one. And copyright strike. Boo 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 boo, bitter. That was Aaron, pretty are good. Are you ready yet? Can you save us from this nightmare? No, let's let's. I got one Those more. Those gamers, in they're bitter. Those gamers are bitter. They're full of hate. Wow. I could. I was gonna do another verse, but I can was, see on your faces that you're wanting. To I loved it. I'm. I'm so happy right now. I could listen to this all night. With the scholarship. Wow. Don't. Don't. Don't encourage him. Yeah. Encourage no. Him. no I could listen to you sing forever. Remember that time I rapped? I could rap. Hey, I actually have Aaron, please, Aaron, please. I'm begging you. Please be ready. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Title overview. One star on Amazon. Evil misrepresented. This is a satanic game. Do not buy. We purchased two of these games to give as gifts. We decided to open one early and play it to see how it was. We were shocked and appalled when the instructions of the game told us to begin chanting. Yeah, told us to begin chanting and pray to all that is unholy and evil. This is disgusting. Do not buy this garbage. It is marketed as a fun, mystery suspense, but it is pure garbage. I could not get this box of evil out of my house fast enough and on a UPS truck back to Amazon. Uh, so, I'd be, I feel like Matt probably knows what this is, and I have actually seen this review, so unfortunately, I, I'm not going to guess, uh, but this is such a good one. I was going to bring this one Wait, out. I'm blanking on it. It's an evil blank? game. And they, as soon as you open, wait, actually, you know what? I can't, I can't even begin to guess. I have to rant. You want to talk <laughs> about evil. You want to talk about evil. These people bought a gift and they said, let's open it and play with it first. Who does that? They said they bought two. People who <laughs> want to make sure that the gift they're giving isn't satanic. Yeah. Let's check this. This is a valid concern. Let's check this yeah, game you know, for Yeah, you Satan. never know. Like, it's like, it's like taste testing the emperor's food before you give it to him. You just have to make sure. I so don't that, know what this game is, but I find it really hard to believe that whatever satanic evil theme it has is not self-evident on the cover. Like, I feel like whatever it is, you would look at it and go, that probably has a lot of devil <laughs> stuff in it. Am I right about that? Is that a solid guess? Uh, 
you're you're not off base. I've got I've got a, another review for you, Matt. I think this one should okay. should help. I'm in the woods right now. I like certain parts of the game where you build your own game board, and there's fun things like Frankenstein and Dracula. No problem. However, there are very very <laughs> negative spiritual elements in this game. In the book that said, "Do not read." There is voodoo with an explanation of different voodoo dolls, seances, the gateway to hell, pentagrams, demons. It goes beyond fun, scary things into really, really dark things. I played it once. Now it's not allowed in my house. Nuff said. Okay. Nuff said. I don't know anything about many board games, but is there any chance that this is Betrayal at the House on the Hill? Ding, 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 ding. Sound oh, my gosh. For oh, so good. Okay. Uh, okay. I can't believe okay. I got one. <laughs> yeah, you did. Great job. That is, um, how do you buy Betrayal? <laughs> At the At House on the house Hill. House on the Hill with a looming haunted house on the cover and a group <laughs> of people about to venture forth into the darkness and think to yourself, I bet this game is full of uplifting spiritual messages. Uh, How do you buy a a haunting game and then be like, oh, this game has haunting stuff in it? Mm, Send it back. I mean, I don't know. I don't know, man. I'm having a lot of uh, issues with that. That's like not just buyer beware, but like buyer be, uh, you know, perceptive. I mean, you know. I feel like it's like you just went up to the beehive and kicked it and then went, why were there bees in that beehive? There are some pretty gnarly haunts in there, though, if you're not ready for it. Oh, yeah. I did uh, uh, I did bring, I was asked to bring uh, a board game uh, over to um, uh, an event uh, involving uh, youth at a church. (laughs) Uh, This has been the last few years. That sounded way more suspicious than if you just said a youth event at a church. An event involving youth church. Well, it was like at a house. Okay, I was trying to, I was trying to figure out how to describe what it was. Um, well, you know how churches are. You know, this was a weird indoctrination thing. No, it was like a house party, and then they were like, we're going to have some of the church youth there. And you get the reputation as being the board game guy after a while. And everyone's like, you're a board game guy. Bring some board games over and teach us some board games. And I grabbed like three or four without thinking like much about it. And I got there, and for, to whatever, to, much to my surprise, everyone was like, this looks fun, Betrayal at House on the Hill. And as we were playing and it was building toward the haunt, I was just thinking, like, they're going to do the one where you have to summon the devil. This is what's going to happen. Like, they're going to pick the one where you have to, like, stop the devil from coming. Or the one where there's cannibals or something, like, really upsetting. And I was like, ugh. This and then is all not those people went on Amazon and wrote these reviews. <laughs> this might be the. I may have caused this. But what happened? No, the, what well, we played the haunt. We played the haunt where uh, there's like a ghostly bride and you have to like reunite her with her corpse so that she can like uh, be reunited with her long lost love. It's actually uh, was probably the most benign. It was <laughs> it was the most benign like Shirley Jackson, the haunting kind of like gothic horror like thing in the book. And it probably worked out the best. Oh uh, no! So these concerned. people played the game, loved it, bought it, bought it for all their oh, friends no. at yeah, the yeah, at the yeah. church, and then they got to the haunt where it was like, okay, so you're the devil, and your goal <laughs> is. And they went, what? All right, so I've got I've got one more game, and these right. these are from the Geek Proper. Uh, so the first one, this one's just for fun. This has no clues in it. I just thought that was a funny review. This game definitely exists, and you can play it. The rules make sense, and it's rather quick. One point. I feel like I know what this is, but I cannot remember. Okay. I'm curious to hear what it is. 1.2 stars. Not terrible, but just not very interesting. A mediocre filler game that I have zero interest in playing again. It feels like a twist on 500 Rummy. It's kind of like a less fun version of any number of other games out there. It's not bad, per se. But I can't imagine seeking this game out or choosing it over almost any other game. Personally, I don't care for the artwork either, but that's a matter of taste. Oh no, I know I've done this, but I don't know what it is. Matt, okay. do you have any ideas? It's at all? not Save ringing me. a bell at all. I've never played 500 Rummy, so like I, I have, don't have a clue. I have two more reviews. Both of these will absolutely give it away. Oh okay. man, okay. I'm going to feel very, very dumb. Basic set collection seen in a plethora of better games with a popular wingspan theme slapped on it. Wait, is this Q-Birds? It absolutely is Q-Birds. 
Oh, that's oh, I'm I'm a no. I am uh recent I'm, recent dice pirates hot wow. favorite. Yeah. Wow. The dice pirates are way into cue birds. If you never played it, uh I'm not even sure how to describe it. There's a tableau of birds out. It's a basic set a, collection game. It's a basic a set collection game. Wingspan yeah. yeah. I mean, uh it, it has cute little cuboid birds. It's uh you play a card, you pick up some more cards. It's it's just fine. It's not a game. It, okay, going back to the earlier discussion, this is not the main event or, or the main no. course of the game night. It's You're not bringing this thing out. No, this is a this is a beef tartare of a board game. If there ever was one, this is like. Uh, and I love that that's the the food you chose as your appetizer: beef tartare. I'm, I'm a fancy bro, like <laughs> going way back. Uh, you know, but, it's an amuse yeah. bouche. It's an amuse bouche. It amused my bouche. I don't like that. I'd like it to be taken out of the show. <laughs> like, as soon as I said it. We'll save that for the Patreon cut. Yeah. <laughs> well, oh, I've never man. heard of this before, but cute cube-like birds sounds like something I absolutely want to play. Like, I don't it's care so how simple cute. it is. If it's cute, I want it. And that's the thing is, like, it's simple, but also at the same time, like, so we played this on Board Game Arena, and we played three or four and Max won, like, 75% of the games. And, I mean, yeah, it's a simple game, but let's be honest. The statistics <laughs> in that case, I mean, obviously, he's doing something right. So, well, like, Ma yeah, Max he's, been, he's been practicing a lot off, you know, sure. like, without us. Oh, His I ELO it. was, like, he's 20. Like he's... But there, obviously, you can play well. So, you know, it's not just luck. No, Max is a witch. He sold his soul to the devil to get game powers. That's, oh, like, what I He played too believe. much betrayal at the house on the hill. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what happened. He yeah. played Ironically, that, that he hates high. that game. Ha! <laughs> I, you know, though, also, I think there's really something to be said for games that are very simple. I know amongst the community of people who really play board games, there's a somewhat of a, though, that game is, like, really simple, so we don't really want to play it. But when we're playing at home with my family, um, it's a lot nicer sometimes to have a game that's really simple, but that is just fun. Yes. You know, and I feel like there is definitely a lot of merit to a game that is really really basic but that is fun anyway really basic really quick really easy to teach uh everybody's collection needs a q-birds like something like in that same sort of mold i think it's a, a q-birds is as good a choice as any we are going to go ahead and move on to our review of red rising going to break that down is it a simple game how do we feel about that we're going to get right into that in just a minute All right, and welcome back to the Dice Pirates, and we're going to go ahead and jump right into our main topic this week, which is a review of uh, the latest game from Stonemeyer, and that is Red Rising, based on a popular book series. Real quick, uh, Matt, it's actually not the latest game. They did have another game come out recent, more recently, so it's not the latest game. Yeah, Rolling Realms is the... Man, rookie yeah. mistake. Dang, comment. Just leave league. this in. Let's leave this in. Uh, I just, it's okay. Not the latest game, but almost nearly the latest game from Stonemaier <laughs> Games. Uh, Red Rising. Uh, all right. So, Ian, you kick us off the discussion here. This is a game that I haven't played, a book I haven't read. So, I'm uh, a fairly useless component to this discussion, but that's never stopped me from participating before. <laughs> so, uh, but give us a little background. What is this? So Red Rising is based off of a novel series. It's a series that Jamie Stegmeier clearly seems to care about a lot. Of course, he talked about this when we did our interview with him a while back. If you read the rule book, he does a shout out for the novel itself, talks about how this is something that he really wanted to get right. So the game itself is actually a hand management like combo game. You're going to have a, a hand of anywhere from between you know four to six cards normally and the cards are all going to be you're going to be putting them down on a shared tableau where there's going to be various actions and you're going to be picking cards up so your turn is mainly going to consist of just put a card down pick a card up the actions on the card every time you put it down are going to advance you towards some of the victory conditions and when enough of those are met that's when the game ends you score points by getting the victory conditions but also by having a hand that synergizes well with itself and that's really where the meat of the game comes in is how the characters on the cards every card is a unique character how do they interact with each other 
just from when you put them down, how do they interact, but also in your hand, some cards will score negative points if they're paired with a certain individual. Others will get bonus points if you have some of the same type, some of the same color. So it's all about this idea of how do you balance putting cards down, but also making sure that you keep enough cards in your hand that you can get good scoring later on. So you want, it's a tough balance to strike, but it's actually quite enjoyable. It's not a super complicated game. Like I, I think, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but it's actually fairly simple to teach just because the basic idea of it is just every turn, put a card down, pick a card back up, take the action before you pick the card up. Pretty simple, not too in depth, but there's a lot of, there's a lot to break down there. Of course, uh, Aaron and TJ, I know you guys both have the game. You've both played it quite a bit. How'd you feel about the game when you got into it? What are your thoughts on this? It did throw me a little bit in the very beginning because I haven't played a game that was like this before. I'm not as much of a board game nerd as I am a book nerd. So the, uh, the draw to me for this game was much more that it's based on a series that I love. And uh, the mechanics of trying to balance playing cards that have beneficial actions when I play them versus picking up cards that uh, work beneficially with other cards in my hand was a little bit tricky for me to wrap my mind around in the beginning. But I did also feel like it was pretty simple to learn, especially considering some of the other games that uh, Ian's showed me in the past. It didn't take me super long to figure out. And by like the second or third time playing it, I felt like I was able to score decently and I felt like I knew what I was doing. Who knows if I actually do know what I'm doing, but I, it sure feels like I do. So I feel pretty good about it. I mean, me mechanically, it's a really straightforward game. Uh, the first game night I brought it to after I got it, I actually had two people hit me up who were at that game night to get me to buy copies because I have the stone my anyway i sold two copies of the game that night basically they they all loved it so much you know it's uh you've got a handful of cards you're playing cards to the table to pick up other cards from the table not dissimilar from cubers um that's all about uh each card will give you more or less points depending on what other cards are currently in your hand and as a general rule over the course of the game you have a fixed number of cards that you can have in your hand and you're always going to have those cards you know that number of cards so the game is it's less about playing cards to use cool powers or to to get all these you know crazy combos happening and it's really more about getting as many cards in your hand that care about the other cards in your hand as possible um you know you'll have some cards that will give you bonuses if you have uh, a different color card or some that'll give you less points if it's in your hand with a certain named very specific card. So it's just about finagling your way there. And then, and this is something that I, I reading a lot of the, the reviews, at least early on in the process, I think a lot of people didn't really understand why this was happening but you will get to a point usually before the game is over if you're playing well where you've got basically your perfect hand and you don't want to do anything else to it and then the game kind of shifts for you of trying to force and rush the end game triggers that have nothing to do with the cards it's all about there's there's like separate tracks that you're you're tracking things on and it's all about pushing those bonuses and going after those things to rush the end of the game once you've got your perfect hand. And I think a lot of people kind of got to the point where, like, they'd be on turn five and they'd have the perfect hand. They're like, well, I don't want to keep playing anymore. I've got the perfect hand. It's like, yeah, but you have to keep playing. And that's what makes it interesting because there are ways for other people to occasionally manipulate what's in your hand or your ability to put a card out and then on your next turn get that card back. So it, it, you do still have to keep playing. And I think there's, I think a lot of people kind of missed that shift because it's never really called, it's never explicitly stated, this is when to do this thing. You kind of hmm. have to figure it out. Yeah. But I think that's a really great facet of the game. I actually really liked the kind of the give and take there. It actually reminded me a lot of Fort, uh, which is a game we did talk about a, a long time ago. But the idea that 
it is a hand management game, but you're actually getting rid of, you are actively encouraged and required to get rid of your hand as you move forward. So you have to balance that. It's also interesting because like playing with different people and especially different player counts, the game becomes quite different because at a lower player count, you're going to have more time to get what you want, to get the cards that are going to be a good hand for you with a larger player count. A, there's just going to be the cards in, uh, that are available are going to shuffle so much that it's hard to plan future turns ahead. And also, as people just barrel towards the end, sometimes if you got somebody who just loves to go for the end game advantages, people are just the game is going to end pretty quickly, and so you don't have as much time to get the cards that you need. So, but also if you fall too far behind, while it's not as many points the end game advantages the it, what drives the end of the game they don't give you as many points as a good hand will if you shirk on those you are going to be down enough points that it could cost you the game so you have to balance the two i thought that was actually a really tightly designed idea i like that a lot too and i maybe i'm not playing it right or well but i didn't feel like i got to a point where i never felt like i got to a point where i thought this is my perfect hand and i don't want to play anymore because uh, new character cards kept coming out that had different ways of fitting together and the characters in my hands might have had certain like abilities that I wanted to be able to use to like get another card or like the card that I wanted got buried and I need to get it back but it's all the way down there and I uh, so I kind of felt like I was rushing to get all my pieces together until the end whenever I played it uh, which I liked too it was uh, I do like the balance between the endgame trigger tracks and putting your pieces together i feel like all of the different aspects balance really nicely in a way that means that you don't get bored i have a question i have a question for tj as a fan of the books you said you're more of a reader really than a board game uh player so do you feel like the game like captures the feel of the books does it tell the story of the books or evoke the world in like a good way i absolutely do i was actually talking to Ian about this just the other day, that the books are very much about characters and the way that the characters interact with each other. I don't know if we mentioned that all of the cards in the game are character cards. Every single card is a different character. And a lot of the themes in the book, you have your, your main character, Darrow, uh, and he's a very charismatic leader. And the book is very much kind of his journey through the revolution that he goes on. And some of the main conflicts are his personality mashed up against this other character's very charismatic personality and the different ways that you can lead. And it's all about how different people interact with each other and their different kinds of skills and how you can be stronger together as a group than you are by yourself. And I felt like that was reflected really, really well in the game because all these character cards have different abilities that they can play if you play them out, but they might be stronger if you keep them in your hand. And it's all about meshing characters that work together into your hand. Just like in the books, Darrow's journey was a lot about trying to get the people that supported him placed in strategic ways and getting them to work well together and putting the people that needed to be together together. So I thought it really evoked the, the books so, so well. And it made me really excited. That's awesome. I, uh, <laughs> it's going to be a hard disagree. <laughs> I think, I think my, granted, I've only read the first book because the second book took a very severe tonal shift and it really, I, it, it fought me wanting to enjoy it. Uh, I think I would have enjoyed the game more with not knowing who these people were and their stories because I kept expecting and maybe obviously this is a lot of this is on me right I, I went into the game expecting something that the game wasn't I was expecting because this was pitched as being like based on this amazing book and Jamie loved the book so much and he like got input from the author while he was working on the game, like, very book, book, book. So I read the book before the game came out, and I was like, oh my god, I love this so much. I finished the book in, like, four days. It's amazing. And then I get the game, and, like, none of that is represented. The Some of the relationships between the characters are there. You know, so it, it doesn't make sense if you've never read the book why 
the card that says the Howlers is worth zero points unless it's worth the card that says Severo. Like, there's there's nothing implicit in the game to that. And that does make a lot of sense if you've read the book. It's it's a kind of a, you know, great little story arc in the book. But at the same time, if you completely strip the theme off of this and just make it Wizards and Dragons, I think it still works. And I don't know that the game is better for having specifically the theme that it does i will say just hearing you talk about it i was like you know what maybe i'm being too hard on this maybe i do like the the story of it more but i think that's also i'm very easily swayed by a person with passionate feelings i think that the game actually is somewhat more based on the second two books in the series rather than the first so i feel like part of the difference here might be the fact that i've read all three because you're right there's a well then maybe the game should be called golden sun and not red rising yeah, but Red Rising is the name of the books as a whole. The After the first book, the series does take a tonal shift. The first book is a lot more adventure-oriented. And then after that, there's a lot more politics. You know, the character-to-character interaction. And as they're trying to maneuver themselves into being able to put pressure. Uh, and a lot of those things kind of come out more in the, the endgame tracking as well. Or like little things like the Sovereign Token and, and all that kind of stuff. Um but all the politics of the second two books, I think, is much more represented in the way that this game plays than the adventure-like story of the first one. And that did actually throw me off a little bit, too, when I first played it, because it had been a while since I read the books, and I was remembering the first one and all the action and adventure. And at first I thought, this doesn't seem all that much with the books. But then I went back and uh, like reread them a little bit, and then that was when I really got excited about the board game. It's definitely not a game that really tells a narrative. It, it really is more about kind of like experiencing the universe. In many ways, it's it's, a, it's very similar to the Call to Adventure uh, series of games, where it kind of evokes the idea of the story without actually telling much of a narrative. You can build the narrative in your head, you can experience it, but it doesn't use its theme in as maybe like encompassing as a way as maybe something like Dune does, or you know, like any of those games in, in that narrative, which is you know potentially a good and a bad side and i do think that you know i mean we've talked a lot about what we liked about it but of course there are definitely some downsides it's not a perfect game and i do think that you know while i don't think it's too difficult to teach like tj said you know it is a different idea to try to get across to people but also it can be a lot like when you first throw it at somebody it's like trying to get them the idea of it's like okay yeah well you need to look for this specific card but what if that card doesn't come out the first couple plays can be rough because you have no idea like okay well is this card like if i need darrow to get a high scoring hand if all my cards revolve around darrow is it worth waiting for darrow or do i go for something that i see like what are the chances of how often will cards cycle through what's the idea here and so figuring that out and kind of understanding that balance does take a little bit more to experience what, what's something that you guys do sort of feel like is maybe one of the downsides of the game? If you feel it has one, maybe you think it's a perfect game. Playing the Automa, the cards get buried and disappear so quickly. Like, when I was playing with other people, I felt like cards were more likely to come back out and I would have a shot at getting my card back. But playing with the Automa... if I didn't snag a card the second it came out, it was like it was just gone. And... Um, I mean, it definitely was a different way of playing that wasn't necessarily bad, but it did get frustrating when I was like, oh, I see all these cards that could work so well together. And then like two turns go by and I'm like, one of them is banished and out of the game and the other one just disappeared into the Automa's hand. And now my whole strategy is messed up. Yeah. Do you feel like you enjoyed the the solo version enough to like go back to it or is it not worth oh, I playing did. the solo version? If you I would definitely people? still play the solo version. I've played it several times. I think I would rather play with a person but it was definitely still i I mean i just like looking at all the character cards and uh, trying to make it work it's just really interesting even even just playing with the automa but it was kind of frustrating to have like all the cards that i was trying to get disappear so quickly change the strategy of it yeah it's it's one of the harder of the stonemire automa factory brand solo experiences just it it 
I know they, they try and replicate the feel of playing against another person, but I felt like it was just so... And maybe it's just the group of people that I was playing with, but it was just so different. It was, like, so ruthlessly, constantly aggressive, whereas any time I've played the game physically with other people, they've been a lot more contempl you know, contemplative and... Uh, you know, less less willing to burn everything at a moment's notice, whereas the, the Automa is just like, I have no plans other than the absolute destruction of the universe, and you have to eke out a win before that happens. Yeah, it's kind of like a race against time almost in some ways, because if you let it go on, if you're playing with people, you can let it go on for a long time and just get your hand nice, but with your playing with the Automa, eventually the Automa is going to trigger the end game, and the longer you go on, the more points the Automa will get in by collecting cards to their hand. So... You know, there's there's like a race against time aspect that you don't have when you're playing with other people. Unless you're playing with someone super aggressive who's just like, end game, end game. But uh, it definitely did. It changed things a lot. In a way that does kind of make it interesting. It's almost like you get a second kind of angle on the game. But it, it's also like if you want the experience of the more chill game, you can't really do that by yourself. So I have a thought about this game that I think is worth maybe considering because I've seen this game at... Uh, my local target in town and i know this is one of the stolmeyer releases that seems to have gotten like a mass market retail kind of push and it's based on a young adult book property that a lot of people recognize so it occurs to me this is a board game like a hobby board game that a lot of people might pick up on a whim because they recognize the title or that a grandparent might buy for a kid because they've seen them uh reading the red rising books and so this could be a, a lot of people's gateway into uh, hobby, like more thinky, crunchy, like board games. Is this a good gateway game is a question. Or is this going to like, are people going to bounce off this and be like, oh man. Uh, I think it's, anytime I see like an IP property being adapted, I think, oh, there's going to be people that buy this that maybe don't know what they're getting into. So is this a gateway game? I think this is a great second step. Okay. I don't think this is going to be the game that you sit in front of your friend who has only ever played Monopoly and then some Risk in high school, and then they're going to be like, oh, wow, board games are great and amazing. I think there's enough stuff happening that you kind of have to be aware of at all times that will really turn off people who are not already... Like, you know, there's there's when you've played enough board games, there's you access this this shared vocabulary you you learn how to manage all of these things at once but when you're first starting to play quote unquote real board games and that felt gross to say it like that even yeah uh, i hate it. everyone hated it yeah no i just i i, I heard the back shivers from all of you uh but when, you, when you're first starting to play more advanced board games or designer board games whatever you want to call them um especially if you're trying to introduce a friend, you kind of fall into this trap of this game is really easy to me. Yeah. So this is going to be great for you because this, I don't even have to think while I'm playing, I can be washing the dishes in the other room and yeah. just shout my commands to through the wall to you. But it's really easy to forget that you know everything that you know. I am actually going to disagree with you on this one. I think this is a very solid gateway game. I think that people who like complicated board games make simple games more complicated when they play them. I think Red <laughs> Rising is a really good example of that. It's pretty good. For instance, Red Rising, you get so much of the game is based around having a good hand and how do you balance that. But if you jump in and you read through the rules and you play the game, the game that you think the game that you're playing you're thinking you're going to think it's focused around reaching these three end game objectives and so you're going to focus on those and the scoring of your cards is going to not be an afterthought but it's not going to be the game for you you're going to look at it in a different way if you haven't been exposed to all of this other stuff so i think somebody jumping in is still going to enjoy the game i mean yeah, it's not going to be for everybody but i think a lot of people will still get s stuff out of it and they're still going to enjoy it just because they're not going to be seeing it on another level. And so they will learn that as they go. But because they're not worried about that aspect of it, the rest of the game is still tightly built enough that that's fun in and of itself. So I think it does work well as an entry-level game 
because I think when we look at it, we're worried, oh, well, is, are they going to understand hand management? They don't have to. I think that's one of the beauties of this game. I think I kind of want to take a middle road because this feels appropriate. Boo, Ian, boo, you, sometimes do, you sometimes do what Aaron was just talking about, where you say to yourself, well, this game is easy. But what you don't realize is that it's easy for you. And when you bring it to the rest of the family, we're sometimes sitting there like, what is happening? Uh, <laughs> I was so, about to say, take everything you just said and apply that to uh, our earlier conversation about Sushi Go. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Ian thinks very, very, very strategically, and Ian is really good at board games. I'm a see-to-your-pants gamer. I cannot strategize to save my life. Uh, and I feel like this game is fine. And, and Ian was right when he said that bit about how if you're not used to playing a lot of board games, you just won't see the extra layers. And you can still play mm-hmm. it and have a lot of fun without ever knowing that there's this whole undercurrent that you could be doing and you're not. So I feel like, I do feel like if I had never played a board game before and I was just some kid and my grandma gave it to me for Christmas, I would definitely at least try to figure it out. And I would probably play it a decent amount if I was really into the books. If I was some kid who was just like, oh, I love these books and I'm going to like play this board game a bunch because look, it's all my favorite characters. Um, But if I didn't have that like passion to want to figure it out because of a love for the IP, I feel like I would have bounced off it a bit. I would have been like, this is kind of confusing and I don't really understand it. I'm going to go play another round of Ticket to Ride. Well, you know, it is sort of like, uh, it feels like if you've read the books, you might have enough of a connection with these characters in this world. It's kind of the sense I'm getting to where you'll probably like power through and maybe learn the game because you kind of appreciate uh, what's going on. Uh, if you've never played a very many heavy board games at all, this might still, still feel heavy-ish to you. But it's worth thinking about because it, it makes me think about like uh, the Fallout board game that Fantasy Flight Games put out a few years ago which kind of wasn't great. It was a bit complicated and a lot of people didn't like it uh, for various reasons. And I know that was a lot of people's first board game. Uh, and to be fair, Shut Up and Sit Down made this point in their review. So I'm, this is where I'm getting this from. But they brought that point up and it. They, I think it was valid. A lot of people probably bought that game because they liked the Fallout video games. And that maybe wasn't a great <laughs> introduction to like board gaming for a lot of people. So, you know, I, I'm excited to see like them uh stonemeyer adopting like a relatively popular uh property but i just i hope that people that like stumble upon it you know feel maybe we'll go out and buy more cool board games this could be a gateway into the hobby so that's our red rising review before we go i'm going to give everyone 30 seconds and i want to hear what your favorite sci-fi novel slash series is real quick and give you guys a quick second to think my personal favorite is definitely the signal to noise signal shatter duology by eric nyland essentially a alien contacts guy on earth and has him be the middleman for stealing technology it's like an espionage thriller but with intergalactic stakes pretty fun i like it a lot uh matt what's your favorite sci-fi series oh man uh that's hard uh i just finished reading uh the Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin. So I'm going to shout out uh, the Hainish novels by Ursula K. Le Guin, which also include Left Hand of Darkness and a bunch of other books. Uh, they're really good, really smart, really thinky. Uh, I like uh, those a lot. All right, Aaron, what's your series? Uh, I mean, this is a real uh, pumpkin spice latte basic answer here, uh, but the Ender's Game series of novels by Orson Scott Card. Uh, despite what an absolute trash bag of a human Orson Scott Carter turned out to be. Kind of in the same vein, I mean, not quite, but kind of in the same vein of Red Rising, where the first book is this kid thrown into this environment where it seems like violence is the absolute only answer to all of his problems, so he figures out very early and very quickly that he has to be the absolute best, better than than anyone around him, in order to even survive. And, again, I know everyone's going to be like, oh, Orson, but, like, they're good books, and I think you should read them. It's a great series. TJ, what do you got? Um, honestly, I might say Red Rising, but since That's we fair. just spent a bunch of time talking about Red Rising, I think I will say the Skyward series by Brandon Sanderson. Uh, the first book I really love, I actually got most of my family to read it, and the best way to describe it is Top Gun in space with a teenage girl protagonist who is always 
threatening to kill people. So it's a... Uh, it's pretty great. Uh, it's still in progress. I haven't read the third book yet, although it came out fairly recently. Um, but I loved the first book. The second book took kind of a hard turn to the left, but it was still really interesting. And uh, I'm really excited to see where it goes from there. I love Brandon Sanderson, so I'll always plug anything by him. We do love sci-fi. Hopefully there's some good options if you're interested in some new things. Of course, thank you for listening. Do consider giving us a like, subscribe, follow, rate us. It really does help. We really appreciate it. Or suggest us to a friend. Or just contact us. Let us know what we're doing. Anything you might suggest differently. Maybe give us a suggestion for a bitter board gamers or a rule book randomness. Let us know what you're thinking. Matt, if people do want to reach out and get, get in touch with us, where can they do so? You can find us on Instagram. Just search for at Dice Pirates. Uh, we're there all week long. We're posting stuff. We're reviewing things. We're chronicling our adventures in board games. Uh, and if you send us a message, we'll even talk to you in real life. Can confirm. <laughs> we do promise to be nice. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Keep an eye out next week for another Captain's Log. We'll be back in two weeks with a normal episode. Thanks, everyone, for joining us, and we'll be back soon here on the Dice Pirates. Play more games. Play more games.